G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Able, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. G'day there. Rod Harrison here, an old bloke with a fly rod. The only good thing about uh, being a bit long in the tooth is be able to have a good handle on the on the history, what happened, who done what, and when. And uh, I probably should, uh, yeah, uh, carbon dating is, is is a great thing, you know, with the history uh, and also the people. I had a lot of help. Uh, getting going in fly fishing and uh, enjoy the people aspect as much as the fishing. But anyway, uh, yeah, an old bloke who's been there, done that, and uh, happy to uh, fill in a few gaps with the history and carbon date a few events and people. So uh, here we go. Well, first of all, Rod, I'd just like to say thank you for coming on. Your name has been something that you speak to any sport fisherman, fly fisherman in the country, and it's always Rod Harrison's name that comes up as the bloke that's been there, done that. And as you just said, you put it perfectly. It's about the people. It's about the journey. And I'm excited to hear about that journey and where you started with fly fishing in Australia. And I think there's so many people that um, their careers have kicked off from being inspired by what you've done and the people that you've met and um, you've, you've been a great advocate for the sport and growing it in Australia and definitely put it on a worldwide stage. So, yeah, once again, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for your contributions. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Yeah, it has been a ride, a hell of a ride, really. But uh, back then, it was a natural progression. I mean, I started with bent pins, raided mum's sewing basket for pins to bend. And uh, after grasshoppers and uh, worms, where I grew up as a kid, I advanced uh, to lures, and uh, the fly seemed the next progression. And uh, it was kind of very handy to have that background, so you got to know uh, how fish, uh, what they do, uh, what uh, you know, how to try and work them out. And uh, the fly was in its infancy then, and uh, a lot of people looked at uh, you know fly fishing and thought, well. Hang on, uh, you know, this, that's stuff that rich people do, wave it around for trout. And there was little concept, let alone any appreciation, that uh, any fish that has predatory tendencies 
can be induced uh, to take a fly. Pretty much anything with fins is fair game. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And and look at the list now. Look at look at what the, all those young fellows out there now. And holy dooly, there's some good ones there. I, you know, I wouldn't like to be going shoulder to shoulder with them. Yeah, well, there's certainly um, people out there pushing the limits, and I think with things like um, social media and the internet, it's easier for people to get in touch with others, sort of like how we've been talking and that sort of thing, and like a few of your mates as well that I've been in touch with. Um, so it's definitely a good way for people to, I guess, um, progress at a bit faster speed. But um, there's certainly like people like yourself paved the way for everyone. There was a lot of things that hadn't been done. Um, so we might start with early in your life, you left school and became a shearer out in the bush, um, similar to what your father was doing. That's right. Well, you know, I I left school at 14 and was never destined to have any great, uh, you know, uh, tertiary ex- education. I just hated school. Uh, uh, I was consigned to the care of the Catholic education system and I never really forgave my parents for that. They, they weren't religious. Perhaps they thought the discipline might uh, pull me into line a little bit, you know, and uh, uh, I turned my back on the religious fiction, the force feed. You know, I worship in the great church of the outdoors and uh, uh, that was uh, life for me and fishing and hunting too got into my blood at an early stage and the shearing sheds... uh, all I ever wanted to be as a young man was a gun shearer, and I was on the way, I suppose. But uh, shearing was good money for the time, so I could buy the rods and rifles, uh, what, whatever was available. It was pretty lean pickings, and support a pretty good lifestyle, hunting, fishing, freedom. Uh, I didn't have a car then, didn't have a licence, but I had a motorbike, so I travelled far and wide. Start off an old BSA 250 Bantam, had a big seat and you could sort of pack a suitcase and bungee it down to the back and use it as a backrest. Back then I went to a aerial four square, an English bike, which was, uh, you know, you lay it out on a, on a flat and there wasn't a car that could catch it, nor a cop. And uh, yeah, got myself around the state, uh, had the money and, uh, you know, the to, to pursue a passion and fishing was a uh, common thread that sort of led me from sheep station to sheep station. I really liked the stations on the rivers, river frontage, uh, Murray Cod and Yellow Belly to catch, uh, pigs to shoot, uh, but my God, rough sheep. The uh, world industry that in those days, they, they thought the more skin you could pack on a sheep, the bigger the yield uh, when it comes to collecting the, the wool check, but the uh, poor old shearer had to labour away instead of sort of driving uh, on a freeway, nice open blows and big tallies, you're on the uh, equivalent of a Juddabar dirt road. But anyway, that was uh, life, but the camaraderie is good, the money was good, the work was hard. And so when did you stop shearing and become a police officer? Was that when um, your family came along, when you had a wife and kids or...? Well, no, no. Well, I, I, I had a girlfriend. We were living in sin, I guess, <laughs> and, and uh, she uh, got a bit of a, a gut full of me coming home. She said, "All you ever do is 
turn up out of nowhere, a bag full of dirty washing, and expect the bed to be made. <laughs> and uh, I gave it a bit of thought, and um, I had uh, a cousin who I idolised and went to school with, and I tried to sort of uh, uh, perform to his standard at sports. He was just a natural, gifted athlete. And he became the toast of the family when he was accepted into the uh, police force. And I thought, well, you know, after a few pep talks and uh, this relationship broke up, I thought, oh, you know, I might give it a try. And uh, I, I'd never been in trouble, but I was wary of the uniform and gave cops a wide berth. But anyway, I uh, went, uh, went to Sydney and uh, look at you know tried to sort of change tack uh, i was either the fire brigade the police force or the army and uh had i joined the army uh, I'd, have, I'd have been sent to vietnam and i'd have gone willingly i would have got killed but i so I certainly would have taken a few with me the way i uh, went at life <laughs> but uh anyway i was accepted into the police force and uh found myself after a, an initial training period on the beat little old ladies tugging at your shirt sleeves uh, excuse me officer can you remember? you know this sort of thing uh, you're a walking information uh, uh, booth I was stationed in Regent Street uh, and between Broadway and the Haymarket I found a golden mile of fishing and shooting shops I didn't know they existed but there they were a golden mile. So, uh, and I walked into one, a very well-appointed Aladdin's cave, I guess, and uh, ran into a, a fishing tackle industry man about town, John Buffune. Buffune was on his rounds, and anyway, uh, I knew the name because he used to devour every every skerrick of information on fishing, and he was a a noted fishing writer. You know, and reading uh, came into the equation. I, I read everything. I like cowboy books because they're short and sweet and you can sort of uh, doze off and then get back to the same page and the goodies are still wearing white hats and no women in there complicating things. Anyway, you know, even even the squares of yesteryear newspaper in the shearing shed long drops, I used to pull them off and scan them. Anyway, uh, I sort of... Uh, become a readaholic, and uh, Buffune sort of introduced me to his network, and he had a you know, he had the best. Uh, went from Ron Calcutt to uh, Jack Erskine, Clyde Kelton, Bill Fitch, and uh, pretty soon I started hanging out with those blokes, and then my days off, uh, we'd go fishing, and about that same era, the sport fishing uh, movement was... Uh, gathering steam and of course uh, Kelton was a uh, he was ahead of his time he was in a bucktail jigs and flies saltwater fly fishing and Bill Fitch uh, he had a, a trawler moored up down at the spit and we used to go out to Middle Harbour and uh, catch bonito and salmon kingfish initially I I started on the dark side, I suppose, with fly. Bill's advice was to, here, put it out behind. I didn't have a, a, a rig then, but here, put it out in the behind the boat and troll the fly, and then you get to know how to handle the gear. 
And after after a little while, I kept my knuckles out of the way and become fluent in using fly gear as a trolling instrument and got to handle the fish. And it was a bit arse up, but then uh, afterwards learned to, to cast properly and uh, it came together in a backwards uh, form. So back then you would have been chasing mainly like Australian salmon, tailor, skipjack tuna, that sort of thing? Exactly, yes. Bonito, yeah. Yeah. And they would have all been good for um, like can be fussy feeders at times, so casting would be important, line management, so all important lessons in the early days. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And the the match the hatch uh, thing with little minute uh, bait fish, glass minnow type uh, flies, uh, the other blokes that I didn't uh, get ever got to get around to fishing uh, were a little bit ahead of uh, us. Uh, Paul Barker and Bob Longley, uh, they were catching Matt Tuner up in uh, Port Stephens and uh, they had a fly called the Shoalwater Bay Special, a little white bait uh, pattern, but they were well into it when the Matt Tuners used to uh, come into those parts and, you know, that, they were... They were pioneering of it. Uh, it's kind of lost track of them, but they, they were in the magazines and, and doing their own thing. It, it was very much a, a magazine-type uh, deal then. The two big uh, players were Fishing World or and uh, Modern Fishing, and Barker and Longley were in Modern Fishing. And, uh, and But actually, there was, I think there was a cover on Fishing World, a very, very issue, early issue, uh, Barker with the McTunard. Uh, that was on, um, oh, crikey, that'd be back in the 60s. But anyway, it was all part of a first coming. Fly fishing sort of, uh, it was a bit of a fad, this is a salt, for a little while, and then it kind of it fizzled. Uh, I think it, it was made too hard or we didn't have didn't have the casting techniques worked out or the You rigging. would have had the limitations and with that, gear as well too, so you wouldn't... Oh, Absolutely, absolutely. And um, the, 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 the flies of a day, they were interesting. Uh, the variations of it, like a single or a double wing streamer based on what was a Brooks blonde. Uh, that was uh, invented by Joe Brooks, uh, uh, a father figure of, of modern uh, fly fishing in America who did visit Australia, incidentally, and he was Lefty Cray's uh, mentor, mentor. And uh, the Brooks Blonde was tied uh, in profusion by another identity, Jock Gray. Jock Gray lived in Melbourne, and he was a former uh, spook, a, a cloak and da- dagger uh, intelligence operative with a towering intellect and, and a massive library, every word on fly fishing ever was probably on his uh, book wall and Jock used to tie in his spare time vast quantities of fly, flies that you put your hand up and said look I'm interested in in fishing in uh, salt with flies uh, in due course a shoebox full of the things would arrive uh, free of charge no obligation no nothing and you know I, I took him up on that offer we became very good friends and uh, ended up with a bloody a box of these flies, which were, were just this simple, simple single and uh, dual wing streamers. And uh, they, 
they got me through a lot of, uh, uh, you know, early days. And then it wasn't until I met, met uh, Max Garf that he introduced me to uh, Lefty's Deceiver. That's the first I ever heard of Lefty Cray. Yeah. Max, by at that stage, was a member of Saltwater Fly Rodders of America, which was an inaugural record-keeping uh, body and a custodian of the think tanks of uh, fly fishing, uh, post uh, Joe Brooks. And uh, Lefty, of course, uh, invented the he, his trademark fly was a deceiver, one of the first of the swimming flies. Uh, Max, uh, at the time, uh, had moved over from the West Coast. A very, very interesting situation when Max and I done a, a round country trip and met uh, Ron Pearson and uh, acolytes over there like Craig Radford and a, a few others. And uh, fly fishing saltwaters was uh, very much akin in Australia to the America, to the situation in America, an East Coast, West Coast thing. The Westies were ahead of us in the East, no doubt about that. And uh, Max, of course, became an exponent of the, the uh, lefties deceiver, tied a beautiful version, and he worked in electronics. Uh, he was on a satellite tracking station in the West and then moved East to take, over, uh, take up a position with the naval air arm down at uh, Nowra, which was uh, not far down the road from where I was living. I was the local cop in Shell Harbour at the time, so we got our... We, we uh, met and uh, caught up. Uh, Max worked on the uh, flight simulator for the Fleet Air Arm. Australia had a squadron of uh, A4 Skyhawk attack uh, jets and Max programmed the uh, flight simulator to teach the pilots uh, without flying the things around how to uh, drop bombs, strafe uh, uh, baddies, blah, 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 you know. So... Uh, and uh, yeah, Max was a uh, yeah very crusty uh, sort of a character, destructive of egos, but uh, very good, very good short range uh, uh, caster. You know, I mean, it wasn't he, he epitomised the adage that uh, you drive for show and you you putt for dough, as as applicable to uh, fly fishing. You know, short range picking off cruising fish, not attacking it with the fly. Uh, beautiful pinpoint executed cast. Uh, that was him. And uh, I learned a lot. And, of course, introduced he, uh, introduced uh, Pearson. And uh, I'd done a few trips with Ron and uh, East Coast and West Coast. And uh, between the two, had the best of teachers. Ron, um, he, you did a trip out to the Montebellos, was it? Uh, Adele Reef, yeah, okay. which is kind of kind of in that uh, area. We uh, Ron had a, was into sailing, had a twenty eight foot wind sea catamaran, and uh, we sailed it out there and uh, uh, went through all our flies. A lot of red bass there, cobia, and uh, all sorts of things. Hooked a couple of sails, and uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, it was quite a trip that one. Yeah, and over in the West Coast, they were chasing some pretty cool things like Spanish mackerel off the rocks and, for the time, some pretty impressive critters. Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, Max was catching uh, 
Cobia off the rocks, uh, Spaniards off the Carnarvon jetty, uh, Mulloway there too. And yeah, he was, Mac was ahead of his time and, and, uh, uh, and yeah, a, a very uh, testy character, peppery. One of the, he wasn't a real big frame bloke and, and uh, he let his catches and, 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 uh, his general mannerisms do the, do the talking. And, uh, uh, he wasn't the right. Well, he was the wrong bloke to get in a war of words with. Could have, could have put it that way. <laughs> it wouldn't end well. <laughs> oh no, no, you come off second. Yeah, and it's pretty impressive. With like when you think back to the the gear that was available back then and the limited knowledge of flies, the species that they were catching. What were some of the um, like in the early days, like with the development of tackle? What were some <laughs> of the early rods you were using? How did it progress from there? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh, well, the only uh, saltwater rod of any, uh, you know, big fish calibre was a thing scientific anglers uh, produced called the, the Great Equaliser. It was about a 12 weight. I, 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 it wasn't designated with a line weight, but about 12, I reckon. And the only one in captivity anywhere outside America was one that uh, Jack Erskine had. And uh, beyond uh, trout calibers, uh, they just weren't around. Uh, so Max and I, uh, we followed Pearson's uh, lead. Pearson was a big raw bone bloke and he his fly rod was a, uh, based on, uh, it was a caber based on a Butterworth surf rod. And he used to do things like make wax blind cord, lightweight blind cord, make shooting heads out of it and this sort of stuff. Just very much make do. Uh, shoot a goat, uh, you know, use a couple of hunch, henches, hun haunches, that's the word. <laughs> haunches, yeah. <laughs> That's bloody scotch, I think, it's going down too quick. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and tie the fly out of goat hair, which has uh, got no action at all in the water, but uh, Pearson had the fish nows and the smarts to be able to uh, get all sorts of things uh, on it. So we had a Butterworth uh, surf rod, a one-piece. Uh, Max and I uh, went to P Peter Goadby, uh, the Australian... CEO of Penn Fenwick, uh, who uh, were into the game fishing uh, market, but uh, Fenwick uh, was, a, was the American company that first uh, in, uh, invented tubular fiberglass. And then uh, one of the principals at Fenwick, uh, Don Green, uh, he took it another step and uh, started using graphite composite uh, cloths to uh, roll rods, uh, specifically uh, fly rods, uh, called HMG, uh, short for high modulus graphite. Don went on to found his own company called Grizzly, and then uh, later on Sage. Uh, Sage, by the way, was a name that uh, an advertising agency came up with, but, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, household names in the fishing tackle these days. But anyway, Gobi was a wonderful source of information and, and very, very encouraging in his uh, help to, you know, uh, 
get into fishing, uh, whatever, uh, of uh, any form. And a little bit of pertinent advice uh, came my way. And he said, look, if you're going to get into fishing, because I was away ring and moaning to him, I guess, that I was, wasn't getting any job satisfaction about being a, a cop and I had a wife and two kids and uh, uh, barely scraping along on the, on the terrible bloody money you're paid for putting everything on the line, which is, uh, yeah, we're getting the same uh, as, as a labourer, basically. So I went from 50 and 60 quid a week, I could comfortably, comfortably make shearing to 18 as a cop. Yeah, it's just bloody terrible, and no, no overtime, no penalty rates, and you know we've we done it tough compared with uh, what the uh, what the uh, boys and ladies in blue uh, do today. But anyway, uh, Gobies let us uh, sort of uh, sort through the back room, and we found a couple of uh, Fenwick two pin two piece spin blanks. Uh, which we sort of, uh, Max was a better rod builder than me and he uh, made them up and uh, they were about 12 weights and uh, we soldiered on uh, for some years uh, with them. And back then, of course, the um, as far as the records go, 12 pound was the uh, top line class and then I went to 16, then I went to 20 and, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh heavy-duty fly rods and, and appropriate reels and, indeed, the, the line classifying system. Uh, it was done uh, in, like, a, 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 a alphabetic coding then, like a, I think it was a HDH or something like that. Uh, that was an, uh, a, a, an acronym, acronym for a double taper, HDH, if you follow what I mean, just to imagine those that string of letters in a profile of a fly line, you've got a double taper. So the the, the line weights, the after line weights, uh, uh, were were something that had to weight the the genius of a a, a later generation. Uh, I can't remember exactly when it was adopted, but I can remember before times before when uh, you, a, a fly line was coded in this alphabetical mumbo jumbo, and but anyway, anyway, it was it was make do, and and uh, of course you know it contrasts the the salmon then uh, is is today's feast. Yeah. And by the by the mid seventies, you were becoming quite a well, I guess a competent. Flying, like catching salmon and tailor and skipjack and that sort of thing. When did you um, do your trip to Christmas Island? Like you were the first Australian to visit Christmas Island and to chase bonefish, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, that was well. That was Mike Ronfeld and myself. And Peter Gobi is to go to that. Uh, he was one of those blokes. Gobi was much bigger in America uh, than Australia. A revered elder in game fishing. And he was the chief judge at an event, a boondoggle over there called the Hawaiian International Gamefish Tournament, where, where guys that sort of, you know, from all uh, parts of the world, all the high rollers would go over there and, and uh, uh, go trolling for marlin, yellowfin, this sort of stuff. 
And uh, I, I think Peter tried to recruit me into the – I was writing then and sort of uh, feeling my way and I think he initially wanted to re recruit me into game fishing. But uh, I really couldn't see too much – I didn't have the money anyway, but, I mean, sitting on your ass and cranking a, cranking a fish in when the skipper and the deckies do all the work and then sort of try to sort of, you know uh, – elude yourself into being some sort of hero. That didn't sort of cut with me. And um, But anyway, there we were over in Kona, uh, and uh, I had an inkling about Christmas Island. I uh, made a few inquiries and anyway uh, jagged a trip down there because you're, you're over halfway there. And we were lucky enough to find there was an airline there called Air Tungaroo. And uh, one of the pilots uh, flying there was, a, I forget his first name, Chris. And he was an ex-RAF F-111 pilot and, and quite a mad fisherman and, and uh, uh, knew, knew about me from uh, uh, Australia anyway, because uh, I was writing pretty pro prolifically then, uh, not, all, not exclusively on fly, but I was, I was one of the, had become one of the mainstream writers. Anyway, so down we went on, on the basis. They hosted us down there. Uh, that's uh, the Kiribati, uh people, the Captain Cook uh, Hotel. And, I, and uh, I ran into a few Americans down there that were also gearing up to, as a, gearing up to use Christmas Island as a tourist uh, destination. But anyway, uh, Mike and I, uh, we, we had a DIY uh, tour, I guess. Uh, there were no guides there then, that uh, not like uh, today. And what Yanks um, were there, uh, there's people from Orvis and Bob Norheim, Frank Batania, people I got to know afterwards. Uh, they pretty well had the any locals that could uh, accommodate visitors, had them tied up. So Mike and I were kind of left to our own devices and uh, Anyway, we paddled away to around and got some bonefish. I took a pick of Mike with one, put it on the cover of uh, Fishing World, and uh, yeah, we were, we were certainly the first of the, the Aussies uh, to go there and catch bones. And I guess running into a few of the Yanks over there would have been helpful too, because obviously they would have been chasing them in the Florida Keys by then, so they would have had some idea of what flies to use and tactics to catch them, so it probably would have been helpful bumping oh, into them. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Frank Batania had been out to Australia catching uh, black marlin on the Great Barrier Reef, so there was already a common link there, and and uh, they were very, very helpful. And I'd uh, I'd actually fished with Frank uh, over in the states. We kept become uh, firm friends. He was a principal in a in a outfit called Fishing International that uh, packaged uh, fishermen off to to various destinations around the world and. Uh, uh, of course, Christmas Island was uh, the 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 um, jewel in the crown, uh, particularly because the the West Coasters uh, didn't have any access to to bonefish, a huge population, and uh, and of course uh, over on the east uh, they had the Florida Keys, the Bahamas, and indeed the whole Caribbean. So it was a uh, uh, pretty exciting times for them. And, uh, you know, that, that fishery was just in its infancy and, and uh, we were lucky enough to sort of uh, 
uh, to well, I I done most of the talking and uh, convinced the uh, tourist people, the tourist people in uh, Honolulu, uh, get us down there, and you know I'll I'll introduce you introduce you uh, to an Australian audience, and and uh, I think that'll put bums on seats for you. Yep. That was basically the the pitch. Yeah, and really opened up a fishery because, like, so many Aussies look forward to travelling to Christmas Island for the sheer number of bonefish that you can catch there, triggerfish, GTs on the flat. So um, you def- yeah, definitely opened yeah. up a lot of opportunities for anglers there. So yeah, and and, and you know, I mean, I, I uh, what they've done has vastly surpassed any of my efforts, but you know. There's only one first. Yeah, that's it. And then, so after that, in the early 80s, when did you first meet Dean Butler? Dean's a pretty much a household name for anyone that's interested in fly fishing, sport fishing, game fishing, um, excellent reputation amongst the, the billfish crowds and that sort of thing. So when did you first meet Dino? Oh, okay. Well, uh, long story. Uh, Ron Calcutt and I, uh, Calcutt had an idea to, Build a, a vast empire, a, a media side on a magazine and his TV series, and also a a, a travel arm. So you sort of ex- do do a do do a piece of work that exposed a, a location, but also have the infrastructure in place to package fishermen off there. Yep. So we started doing uh, stuff at Lord Howe, uh, not between. You know, not, not too far off Sydney, a couple of hours flight and wall to wall kingfish and a lot of other things. Anyway, Dean was on that first package that came. Young kid, I, 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 I don't think he was much, uh, he probably could have been, may have been 20, I don't know. But uh, stood out from the crowd straight away. He knew what he was doing. Boom, he just sort of picked up a fishing rod and made it work. <coughs> And uh, we become uh, pretty good, pretty firm friends. <clears throat> and a little bit later on, when I got into uh, video productions, uh, Dean came along. Uh, he, he was an offsider, I guess, more than anything. But taking increasing uh, part in, in the operation, I envisaged, uh, you know, uh, Dean, you know, sharing the load and uh, uh, not sort of. Not so much me hogging a camera, but also he could sort of uh, take a lot, take take over and present stuff and do it with consummate ease. I mean, he, he was very, very. Uh, he had a lot of fish now. He could see a situation and see something in it that other people wouldn't. Anyway, we'd done a a few follow up trips to Lord Howe. I was doing the deck at the time, and then Dean came along and started doing that and we started to hang out and then we went over to do a DVD pr- video program and I invited Peter Morse over and at, I wanted to increasingly get into fly fishing to give it a bit of variation because there was so much potential there and anyway uh, Pete came over and and we we caught a a, a smorgasbord of fish, mainly Trevelyan kings, but a few other odds and ends thrown in. And I remember one day we were cleaning up, and uh, I, Pete and I had got some couple of kings in the thirty pound class, 
and uh, Dean was just cleaning up the, the deck and I was just sitting there having a beer. And next minute he races and grabs my fly rod and he's never picked up a bloody fly rod in his life. Oh, yeah, what the hell's he doing, you know? Uh, as he's cleaning the deck down because the little bits of bloody titbits going down the scuppers. And uh, anyway, he's flopped it, un unhooked the fly, flopped it out the back, and next minute he's got a bloody 15-pound kingfish, caught it. It's the first time he's ever picked up a fly rod. And uh, he was just doing his cleaning up and happened to notice this king hanging around the back. And, uh, you know, he was never one to sort of uh, sit back if there was an opportunity there. And virtually he picked up a fly rod and made it work. And next time I saw him, bugger me, if he's, if he's not casting a very, very tidy loop. And, and uh, of course, the next, it, it's all just history there. Uh, just one of those you know, people he, that picked up a fly rod and ran with it, really. Like some people have just got it. They've got the coordination. They've got the nouse. And Dino well, was obviously one of those people. Yeah, just a natural, natural fisherman, you know, and uh, uh, had that capacity to look at something and see opportunity where others would just sort of, uh, uh, yeah, there's so many very good uh, casters in the park and, uh, you know, they can sort of defy gravity with a, a fly rod, but put them in a real situation. It's almost like comparing uh, trap shooting to fail shooting. There's a predictability about trap shooting and when you're casting in the park, and this is not, uh, you know, and not being negative about it, but you're, you're not uh, having any real real life situations. And the only person I saw that came close to it was Peter Morse. And Morse is a very, he's a world-rated caster. He's very good at it. But he constructed a an obstacle course up where he lived up on the Blue Mountains. And one time I was... Uh, visiting and uh, he took me through it. So he had a little, it was almost like a trick golf course, trees here and this there and, and he is to go around it casting here and there. Whereas uh, the casting to rings as in tournament casting is pretty much irrelevant, but I mean, it's a relic that's stuck and that's what they do. That simulates a trout rise and, and uh, you put the fly in the ring. And the simple fact is with a lot of fish these days, uh, particularly some of those oddball things, you do not attack them with the fly. Tarpon is one. You don't, if you do that with a tarpon, you, it's, it's not going to re refuse. So you, you throw the fly on a frontal tangent so there's an intersection between the movement of the fish. You have to leave, uh, lead the fish, but not sort of in a direct uh, on a direct collision course. I guess like Andy Let, Andy Mills says, you feed them the fly. You sort of... That's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, or, or, you know, permits, another example. Let them discover the fly. Golden rule. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any, anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, that was the uh, first time we had... We, it was a pretty good uh, trip, but, uh, yeah, Pete's just gone from... Uh, reached dizzy heights as as a teacher and uh, demonstration caster and and, and, and all that and uh, you know more power to him. But that first time uh, when we're over there doing that program, uh, that was definitely the uh, first occasion 
Butler ever laid hands on a fly rod. And uh, I was glad uh, being there to, to witness it all. That's pretty cool that you were there to um, witness it then and you've seen what he's become now, like a very accomplished um, game fisherman and fly fisherman and loves his barra fishing, sport fishing and whatnot. So to be... And, 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 and black bass. Yeah. I introduced him to that, to that and to lefty, I mean, but he... he uh, he had the ability to to, to see uh, the potential and grabbed it with both hands. Yeah. And so when did you um, first meet Lefty Crow? I believe that was it Max Garth that said to you, you should um, get in touch with Lefty. He's sort of the, one <clears throat> of the movers and shakers and can help you with he, invigorating it in Australia. Exactly, yeah. Well, I, I uh, following Max's advice, I got a hold of uh, a book called Lefty's Original uh, Opus, um, fly fishing in salt waters. I know there's been successive editions and that, but his his first uh, uh, book on on the subject, incident, which incidentally uh, featured the bend back, uh, you know, talking it up, showing the right angle when you bend the bend the hook, and that that's where I initially got the idea. But yeah, I, I um, wrote him a letter and also. Uh, Another little piece of sage advice uh, resonated with Peter Gobi. Uh, we're I think we're over in Hawaii at that uh, boondoggle with the game fisherman, and he sort of said, you know, if you want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get to the top uh, in fishing, he basically said, look, Australia's too small. Really, we don't have the population base. Blah blah blah, and. Uh, you know, look, look look towards America. Go to America and get yourself known there if you really want to sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, get beyond what Australia has to offer. We have good fishing uh, and, and all that, but we don't have the population base to support a full-time um, occupation. That's the very reality of guiding, media, uh, what have you. <coughs> so anyway, I, I wrote a letter. Uh, in essence, dear Mr. Cray, if you want to come to Australia, um, I can look after you. You might have to rough it a little bit, but I'm sure you'll get your string uh, stretched. <laughs> to that effect. <coughs> Excuse me. was on spec, and uh, I'd forgotten about it. And anyway, uh, an answer unexpected uh to quote Tanjo, uh, arrived and uh, damn me if it wasn't four handwritten pages from Lefty. And uh, basically he wanted a whole heap of questions. He wanted to know when, what, and more to the point, what to bring. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we met him at the um, airport and we've become instant uh, friends and and. That first trip, I think we, between big jets, little jets, helicopters, float planes, and, and, and uh, winging a prayer here and there, uh, we'd done 30 flights. Far out. <laughs> yeah, we went to the Kimberley, to the Top End, to PNG, and had a ball. Uh, and he wore well. You know, Lefty, he was just sort of, I was expecting... Uh, one of these uh, demand, you know, Yanks can be very demanding and that was my impression of them. But 
he just fitted in uh, perfectly. But later, when I found out what sort of a, a man he was, he was in uh, World War Two. Was in the Battle of the Bulge, and his um, role there was a observer, forward observer for a artillery unit. And they, they're the blokes right up the front and saying, you know, up 20, back 10, and with binoculars and sort of we're looking for the fall of the artillery. And, uh, of course, that made them a prime target for the uh, Germans. And his, his, um, his unit had a, a horrendous casualty rate, but he got through it. And, uh, you know, and, and he doesn't uh, use uh, rifles anymore, but, I mean, uh, when he left the army and, and uh, went into fishing uh, in in the states, one of his uh, earlier exhibitions was shooting aspros with a BB gun at county fairs. Yeah, okay. Uh, he, he just had that hand-eye coordination, and yeah, and and uh, he he'd slept in uh, snow, in a foot of snow in trenches in the Battle of the Bowl, so. He's not going to bother about, you know, uh, roughing it with us blokes. The only thing we couldn't uh, get him to do was try Vegemite. <laughs> and uh, he snuck it here and there and between bits of bread and under biscuits. And, and by the way, his he, only winch about Australia was when he came out of the customs and they'd confiscated his crackers and cheese and canned meats uh, through some... Anyway, but uh, he got over that. But he was like a brown trout inspecting a fly. He'd look there, and you know, very and and very very hard to catch. And you know, we we, we tried and tried, uh, but uh, we we sort of uh, failed on that one. We done a casting day in uh, Sydney, um, just near Tom Ugly's Bridge. There's a bowling club there, and. Um, Anyway, uh, he'd travel across the Pacific in in, uh, in the bleachers of a 747, and that's not a comfortable flight, I can tell you, guarantee you. You know, Qantas uh, helped us out a little bit, but uh, I, I uh, couldn't sort of get to get a business class upgrade. But, you know, in the bleachers of a 747, uh, Trans-Pacific Hall, uh, you know, that's sort of, uh, you're glad to get off that plane. And I thought he'd, he'd uh, you know, go and crash out for a, for a uh, day or so to get over the jet lag. But uh, no, he wanted to get straight into it. So we'd done a day with Andrew Bros at Rushcutters Park casting and boundless energy. And then the following day we, we went to a, this bowling club uh, near Tom Ugly's Bridge. And uh, lunchtime, I'm looking around, where the hell's Lefty? And he's gone. And... Uh, Anyway, eventually found him over in the bowling rink and he was playing bowls. And, you know, I mean, American bowls is 10 pins skittling the bloody pins and all this. So there's no, it's all brute force, I think. There's none of the finesses uh, of biased uh, lawn bowls, you know, the bloody how they do it and all that. Anyway, damn me if the president of the club wanted to sign him up then and there to, he just picked the bowl up and, oh, yeah, okay, got that and, and, uh, perfect roles and he's doing this with dealing with 20 blokes who are you know uh, in, in sponges for information and how to do this how to do that and uh, you know lunchtime he 
he instead of sort of hiding somewhere, which I would have been doing, having a quiet beer and think, thank Christ, I don't have to, you know, I've got a bit of a bloody break. Uh, he's he's overplaying bowls, just boundless energy. But what he did do was revolutionise fly casting in this country. No question about it. Uh, that that open freestyle stance and uh, using the lower body muscles you know the the more you use the arm the less you use the legs and the more you're going to be fatigued so if you can sort of reverse it like a boxer stance use a weight shift from the lower uh, body sideways cast across your body but rather standing directly behind with a 10 to 2 thing you'll do it a lot easier and with uh, less uh, less effort so he sort of introduced that style and, 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 and a greater understanding of casting. There are many other things to a man's legacy, but I think that was the uh, fly casting uh, all of a sudden became, it, it took a quantum leap, you know, blokes like Jack Mars, Gav Davis, Morse. Uh, there's a few of them around now and uh, they just defy gravity at, at uh, you know, with a fly line and uh, I think a lot of that can be traced back to uh, Lefty's um, early early visit. Yeah, and I can imagine your casting would have um, increased <laughs> leaps, and, leaps and bounds basically, having that instruction and being able to absorb everything from such a good teacher. Very much so. Yeah. I'm lucky to be mates with um, Gavin Davis. He was around here the other week, tying a few flies and that sort of thing, and he's an exceptional caster. Um, a lot of people regard him as one of the best in the country, if not one of the best in the world. So I think um, early in intervention with people like Lefty and that sort of thing, bringing ideas to Australia would have um, made a massive difference and progressed the school yeah. sport quite yeah. quickly, really. Well, see, and there's two ways of going about it too. Uh, you know, if you're looking for distance and all that, uh, the simple fact is the longer uh, uh, longer length, uh, longer distance over which a fly line unrolls the further it's going to go and if you have a, a lanky basketball player build you uh you can aerialize a lot more line and the simple physical fact is you're going to throw it further uh whereas you know you have a compact uh build uh, lefty was only five foot six uh i'm not much bigger uh so we have to rely on timing but there are limitations as to how far uh, you, you're going to throw. But, you know, you've got to ask the question, you know, well, bring up that golf analogy, drive for show, putt for dough. Uh, you know, uh, when, if at all, do you ever have to cast a full fly line to catch fish? So I can sort of do a, you know, got myself uh, organised or trained, or, or I suppose, like, uh, a single pickup and a long cast. I mean, and the secret to that is to lift the fly line off the water and just as the leader is about to come out, go into your back cast then. Yeah. And, and you can do a single pickup and throw, uh, time it right, single pickup and throw a full fly line. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that, that's why fly lines aren't 300 feet. There's no point uh, casting that far. far. You know, uh, but anyway, that's that's just the the difference, uh, a physical fact that if if you have that rangy 
build, uh, you can play basketball and you can, you can uh, like, uh, throw along fly line. Whereas if you're compact, Bill, you can lift weights and, 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 and throw knockout punches and, and, you know. Horses for courses, yeah. basically. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's what it is, yeah. <clears throat> it's using your physical attributes and that's why there's so much, so many variations in uh, fly casting. One style doesn't suit everyone. And that's, I guess, the um, the difference between a, like with a good teacher, they can look at your build and look at how you're casting and take a step back and go, well, if you try this, it's going to improve your cast or your distance or your accuracy. Um, we're quite lucky to have some some great casting instructors in this country, including sort of Morsi and Gav and people like that. Um, so it does make the learning process a lot easier. Going back to um, Lefty, let's talk about some of your travels around here and some of the fishing. Like I know Papua New Guinea like really put that place on the world stage, some of the videos that you recorded with him and um, just the, the, the sheer strength of those fish and the brutality would have been a, a pretty exciting trip. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and this is where you throw the line class uh, book out the, out the window. I mean, you can catch them in certain circumstances, like a, a, a an open water creek junction, and the first snag complex downstream is, is a bit of a bass condominium. But as uh, tides let go and flows vary and junctions start to to drain they move out of the uh, from the cover move up into this to the open water to predate on a cargo of bait fish that might be coming out of wherever it is and uh, those places uh, uh, can be targeted and you may get uh, line weight on 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 a on a bass like a 20 pounder on 20 pound line uh, but that's a that is a big ask, and if you look at every fish, you know the, the possibilities of line weight or better from mullet to marlin, uh, there is none presenting the same degrees of difficulty as as, as the black bass. What they actually do is because is, um, they've got a huge cardiovascular system, and they're optimised for living in fast waters at times i mean uh, those png rivers uh there's any number of them that have a bigger outflow than the murray you know it's, it's 400 inches of rain and, and and that's a bit of current like i've seen spot tails above the mist line in uh in rainforest mountain streams i mean how the hell did they get up there they've got to swim up a, a vertical waterfall uh, it just doesn't. It's incredulous, but you know they they have this uh, knack of uh, seeing something sidling out from the snags. You can see it in some of those tannin water um, uh, locations. Uh, they'll side if they spot a lure, they'll sidle out from the snag and work wide like a good sheep dog, and then line it up and then hit it like uh, one of those line breaker forwards that'll take the ball on the fly, break the first tackle, and and uh, you, there's no nip-nip or bite and, and then a sudden surge. It's, it's all of a sudden quicker than the, the message uh, gets to the brain. Holy dooly, what the hell, you know, and you, the line stretch, your arms are dislocated, the rod's locked up, the boat's 
Sloon has, has seen the cover. And you think, what, WF, uh, what? You, know, <laughs> you, you, you just gobsmacked. It, it's happened so fast. But if you can survive, survive that first rush, you're in with a, a chance. But, yeah, pound for pound, and on the on the yardstick of a pound of fish per pound of line, uh, it's fishing's most intense moment, in my experience anyway, and there's no experience that's sort of, um, yeah, it's just a boom. Uh, it would have been a massive eye-opener for Lefty, and I believe like one of the first fish he hooked, he was left <laughs> with a massive line burn on his hand. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It looked as if he grabbed a Jedi sword. And then did the old trick of um, next time around flicking the line back behind the reel to try and get a bit more pressure to try and subdue them. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and uh, you know, very thinking thinking on his feet. I, I'd never seen that one, but it was so, made so much uh, sense. I, I, I'd actually broken fly lines. And, uh, I was probably a bit, a bit lucky, uh, you know, my shearing days had very strong hands. And, and could actually clamp the line between my fingers and it's not going anywhere. And back when they used to make 35-pound cores, they used to uh, extrude a fly line over 35-pound Dacron. So the, the core strength might be 40-pound and uh, had to go to 50-pound leaders to prevent breaking fly lines. You know, I'd pin, take a pinch or and if, if necessary... Grab, take a wrap, almost like uh, uh, leadering a, a marlin or something, and just hang on. And beyond that, the boat starts to get uh, pulled. That's why, you know, uh, came up with the idea of, uh, you know, uh, hit the motor and drag them out because you couldn't sort of, your base platform is sort of going the wrong way. So you can, you can have all the gear in the world and lock up and, and do this. But unless you can sort of secure that boat or do something to prevent it from being uh, dragged by the fish, uh, you know, you're not in the hunt. So we started, uh, well, I, I started doing it initially and then Dean quick, caught on pretty quick what I was up to and, you know, just sort of give him the word, hit it, Dean, and boom. Uh, but but what sort of, no, what sort no, of fly no, patterns... What sort of fly patterns were you using back then? Were they sort of like Whistler-inspired patterns they, or deceivers? They, they were, or? Yeah, but the, the Whistler is is the uh, base pattern, basically because you're pocket fishing and you need something that'll get down uh, pretty quick. So that that was the uh, that was the one to use. Uh, Barden Blacks, uh, which is a derivative of uh, a Whistler. Uh, uh, one of Ed, Ed Givens' flies and 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 pink things. Uh, well, well, pink thing is just a tarted up whistler. I mean, Graham White, who made it, who fished with Graham, and that he got a bit uh, testy about me saying, "Well, it's a tarted up whistler," and um, you know, I'll stand by that. But uh, he he thought it was a bit more. But interestingly enough, uh, Lefty's first barra on fly was caught up in the Coburg. Peninsula uh, on a pink thing, and, and, and he regards. I've actually got a copy of one of his books, Saltwater Fly Patterns, and he's got the pink thing in there and regards it as one of the must-have flies for Australia. And yeah, then, yeah. Ed, Giv Ed Givens, Barton Blacks in there as well, as oh. well as all the Whistler patterns. And um, 
So, uh, just, you... just a little adjunct to that. I was fishing uh, in uh, Ben's back with Lefty and Ed Givens. Ed, Ed uh, was a mate of uh, Blanton's and uh, derived the Bard, the Black and Bard, yeah, which is a superb nighttime uh, uh, fly, and. Uh, I, I, great, dirt, great dirty water fly as well for threadfin salmon and that sort of thing too. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I used to get uh, Mulloway on 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 that pattern uh, under the Bribey Island Bridge. But anyway, I'm I'm uh, up at uh, Ben's back uh, with Lefty and Ed Givens, and the the guy. As soon as we were out of sight of the the lodge, uh, I'd brought a six pack of SP uh, beer and a couple of packs of fags and gave him to the guide. He, you can't sort of do that in front of people because he, he's got a safe face. And all. I said, here, mate, p here, grab this and help yourself. Piss off down the back of a boat and just le leave it to me. <laughs> he, he, he didn't have a clue on fly fishing. Anyway, uh, Lefty had uh, thrown into a snag and, and got stitched up by a good barra on a pink thing. And then Ed, uh, who... You know, uh, lots of folks want to use their own flies and are single-minded about it. And you can sort of, you know, um, breach the protocol or whatever it is by sort of using something else. I mean, with Dean, and I have great respect for the bloke. Uh, he's a great mate and uh, and helped me a lot. But look, in with DeBlanton, I would not dare put anything on Barra Whistler. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, I mean, Dan, 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 uh, and out of respect for him too, and, yeah. and Dan can be pretty damn intimidating too if he gets his Irish up. But you know, he, he's a great friend, and you know, I'm uh, very proud to be uh, mates with him. But anyway, anyway, guess... anyway Ed uh, could have done the same with uh, his Barden Black because that's a fly that works in that muddy water. Anyway, he tied a pink thing on. I thought it was a pretty good gesture. Made one cast, and he's got a. It was a meter barrow. I mean, uh, uh, the the currency back then was still old-fashioned pounds avoir de poise, and uh, it would have been thirty mid thirties, getting getting on a forty pound, uh, but on a pink thing, and uh, I thought that was a pretty good uh, gesture for a, for a bloke who you know had a. And, and Ed had uh, actually fished in, uh, done a lot of tarpon fishing in Central America. So he, he, he was a man that had been around, but I thought it was a pretty good gesture. Yeah. And through through Lefty too, like he would have opened up so many doors as well, like particularly in the 90s and that sort of thing where you would have oh. got to meet and fish with people oh. like Dan Blanton, Bob Popovich, oh. um, Flip Pallet, all those yeah, sort of like yeah, Bob yeah, Clouser. Yeah, yeah, well, they're all Lefty's uh, network and he introduced uh, me into it and I, I was sort of, uh, I mean, I'm out of my depth with, with the likes of those blokes, you know, but nevertheless I was inducted into it and I, they're all interested in Australia and, and, and uh, you know, the door the door's open. I worked for some time with uh, Ed Rice. Ed was an entrepreneur who ran a publication on the fishing trade in the States and also a, uh, a what would you call it, an entrepreneur who used to stage outdoor shows 
Okay, and, and, yeah. and this was an outdoor show, and these were outdoor shows on the scale of, of Vieca. I mean, they were pretty – that's America for you. Uh, they had, everything's big and everything's here. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I was a guest presenter uh, on that, uh, doing stuff on Australia and, and New Guinea, and Lefty sort of jiggered the program a little bit, so I'd go on after him. Uh, and, and, you know, I just sort of, you know, he'd done all the introductions for me. He's very, very uh, generous and forward-thinking, uh, that. And so we, we uh, California, uh, Oregon, Texas, uh, Colorado, uh, we'd, we'd done a, a, a quite, quite a... I was over there for actually six months at one stage uh, doing out, these outdoorsy uh, presentations, but you know, nevertheless, you, you, you meet a lot of people, and and you know, one uh, introduction leads to another. But you know, it hang, hang out. Ted Jurassic was another one. We'd all go go to uh, uh, dinner at the end of the day, and you know, have a have a real good uh, nosh and a, and a drink. And uh, I I became one of part of a gang, I guess. At the time, there was... and at this stage, you were part of the Sage Advisory Team, so you were the first Australian to sort of be brought into the mix, I guess. Yeah, well, that, that was Lefty's doing. He he uh, yeah he uh, was uh, uh, was Sage at the time, and he uh, got me uh, legged up there, and I actually fished up in uh, in uh, uh, Washington State, uh, so I got to know the blokes there. But yeah, that that was sort of uh, uh, that was a pretty uh, uh well a, a major uh source of you know uh, there's a quiet satisfaction uh to be uh appointed uh, uh invited that type of thing as against writing sending off cvs i'm good i'm this i'm that i'm a uh, wanker, blah 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 blah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and and the tackle trade are bombarded by these people, but to actually be invited, where you're you're not actually uh, having to to sort of uh, uh, deliver a pound of flesh every at every opportunity, and uh, the, 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 there is a difference. Uh, see yeah. what happens with sponsorships; um, they have a a, a uh, limited lifespan and uh, first year uh, once someone takes you on uh, you give it your best shot you know you're, you're here there everywhere plastering uh, you know stuff around more hashtags on a on a Facebook than a telephone book you know I mean that's that's all good but then the second year uh, you can you can be scratching uh, because if you haven't got the depth to follow it up with new material, and the the, the people concerned are sort of starting to look, they they want bang for their buck. And the third year, uh, if you haven't got anything else, if you if you've emptied the emptied the 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 well, sort of so to speak, uh, you start losing credibility and you start repeating yourself, and it, it should have been time to move on. That's a lesson yeah. the, the young blokes should take on board it it takes more than 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 a a facebook uh profile it's almost like a second job really well it, well it is yeah yeah but the reality yeah. Is, is you know you 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 uh, uh 
you can't get by with just an inflated uh, opinion of your own worth. Yeah. And in the 90s, like meeting people like Bob Popovics and Dan Blanton and those sort of guys and Bob Clouser, it would have opened up a whole world of new flies for you as well, which would have been super effective down in Australia as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, all the, all the flies that we use, our standard patterns, our hot uh, patterns, blah, 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 they're all derivatives of what are, what's already been done, the Deceiver, Blanton Whistlers, um, uh Klaus. They're more of a, a tying style than a pattern, and we've sort of like evolved from there, that, doing yeah. different versions that, of it. That, that's exactly correct. Yes, uh, Popovic stuff, yep. and uh, I actually uh, uh, done a thing in. I used to do a bit, bit of stuff in Fly Life, and I think I I done Blanton, Popovic's, Klauser. And I mentioned I actually found a couple of copies of um, old Fly Life magazines that Gav gave me, and yeah, I found a few of them in there. So I'll scan them and send them oh, through to you. Um, yeah, so there's some stuff there, like on Blanton's flies. I think you did that with Chris Beach. Um, you've done some great articles, like the the Harvey Bay Flats fishery when that started. So I'm trying to track down some of the other material for you, so you can sort of go down memory lane again. <laughs> yeah, well, that'd be great. And and you know, I mean the the, the Harvey Bay flats were pretty much the start of flats fishing in Australia. We had them all along, but, uh, you know, we just overlooked them, I guess. And uh, yeah. uh, it wasn't until Sid Boschhammer uh, started. And, and, and then um, over in the West, uh, you know, uh, Brett Wolfe, who was a very yeah. accredited uh, fly guide in Tasmania and a Good fishermen up, you know, up there with the likes of Greg French and that sort of stuff. Uh, he went over to Exmouth and started uh, catching bones, and then got onto their permit. And there are other blokes over there. John O'Shales is one of them, uh, and a few others there. But uh, uh, we had flats fishing all along, uh, but uh, those. I guess it was it was guys like Sid Boschhammer and Dean Butler and yourself and Morsi that really sort of put it put it out there for the masses to realise that we did have it and the different sort of species we had on offer and how to target them and what flies to use. Exactly, yeah, very, very much so. Alan Phillipskirk yeah. was another one, uh, you know, done a lot up in Weeper. I gave Fishy's first fly casting lesson and... Uh, he caught one of the um one of the first permit on flies. He did, too, didn't he? he? With Steve Justin up in, up in um, Hintonbrook. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah. And through through the nineties, um, you've done a you did a fair bit of extensive travel around the world, places like Costa Rica, the Maldives, Bahamas, um, Africa. We might elaborate a little bit about some of those trips. So Costa Rica, that would have been, was it sailfish you would have been chasing there? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, dear, dear. Yeah, tarpon mainly. Uh, yep. Costa Rica is about, from, uh, the country's uh, about the distance you are from Brisbane, uh, from the Pacific yep. to the Atlantic. And, and yep. uh, yeah, I uh, initially uh, went over there. That was all lefties doing uh a friend of his, uh, Bill Barnes, had the Casimir Lodge on the Rio, Colorado, and uh, that was a tarpon hotspot. And uh, tarpon, I, I mean, a serious tarpon. Sometimes I sort of uh, uh, 
find that the young fellows today's generation are, are a bit, little bit, uh, you know, um, confused when you mention the term. You say tarpon, uh, they're thinking of our little chihuahua, and uh, I'm sorry, Indo-Pacific or the Oxalaherring. I mean, uh, 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 anyway, uh, that's peripheral, but. Outside the river mouth, uh, these tarpon are chopping like tuna, like tuna hoeing in a bait fish, and, and it's a sight to behold. And they're all a hundred pound and better, and 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 you know just sort of uh, all you got to do is hit the water. The best fly was a whistler, uh, red and white whistler, uh, mainly because it, it was weighted and it sunk down. But don't let it get sink too far down because underneath a tr- um, tarpon there's a, ca- a carpet of Jack Travel, which is a, a fancy name for Travelli. It's kind of their version of, yeah. of a GT. doesn't get as big, but it, uh, it pulls. Still yeah, a brawler. And, and they're a bloody nuisance. I sort of learned that real, real quick and uh, started to, uh, only, only used uh, 16 and 20 pound tippet. And if uh, you get a hit and there's, there's not a charge and uh, an aerial gymnastics and that, lock up on it straight away and pop it off. It's one of those bloody Jack Cravels, you know. You, I've let the fly sink too far. And, but, yep. but that is uh, another moment in fishing. Someone, it, it's the direct opposite to the stealth and subterfuge and so on that go with flats fishing. And that, that's sort of, it's yep. just a free-for-all. And, and that's something everyone should ex- experience. So I, I forget how many fish I got that first day, six or seven, they're all 100 pounds. I would just bring them up, get them yep. into sight, the funny thing about a tarpon f- fight is uh, you can uh, – uh, the, the gymnastics are over fairly quickly if a fight goes for, uh, say, an hour. And the fighting time, unless you, you sort of know how to fight fish properly, uh, flip pallet style, Andy Mills has adopted it, da-da-da, it can be a minute a pound. So you're up, you're up for an hour and a yeah. half on a 100-pound fish. Uh, which, it's all about rod that, angles that, and, that, and sort of trying to decrease that, the fire time. Very, very the pressure. But you, uh, a third of the t- time of a fight stanza, by round three, the fish has worked out. It's easier to, not to be burning up energy, but to be gulping air and recharging batteries in a, in a dow fight. And at that stage, uh, the blokes sort of appreciated the fish the fact that it could be 100 years old or, you know, it's, it has a fossil history, uh, Tarpon. Uh, just rock. Well, they go back to the um, they go back to the Cretaceous period and I believe there was something like 14 or 15 different species of Tarpon back then, so they're pretty much a living yeah, dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thinking is, uh, well, so you can't pull them out of the water now until you jump in the water for a photograph, but if you don't want that and, and you're going to, that last say third of a fight uh that you got to get really get on top of a fish and i break its spirit and i think that that can have fatal results over there it did because there's bull sharks sitting there waiting and and uh they're not going to bother trying to run down the fish but they'll wait till it's weakened and then attack it 
uh, on the Rio yep. Colorado, there was a bloke uh, tipped a boat over in the bar, and he he lasted ten seconds, devoured by bull sharks. So you know that was something. Yep. And we're only fishing in sixteen foot punch with maybe uh, a foot, foot, two foot or three board at the moat, most. You know, so it's really. Uh, you put a lot of faith in in the guides and and they're all twin cylinder Evinrude eighteen horsepower donks. You know, I ran one one of those for a little while, and uh, uh, they can hiccup and belch and fart and be very cantankerous. So you sort of um, it it was high adventure, mate. I tell you, but any anyway, uh, the fish the fashion fashion was there is to enjoy the fireworks, get the most of it, but when it comes down to a dour slug fest where you've really got to break the spirit of the fish uh, and to get hands on, uh, most of the blokes lock up and just pop them off, go get another one. You know, it's not that important, you know, that uh, you, you, the, the brag. Uh, there's a preoccupation. I, 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 I sort of didn't, never got into the, the sand uh, syndrome. Uh, that's a acronym coined by my mate uh, Lyndon Anlazark. Uh, sand acronym for size and numbers disease. And and uh, <laughs> if you're fly fishing, I don't think you you sort of you don't have to do that. It's, it's you know you don't have to proclaim to the world. Oh look at me, you know. And and most of the genuine tarpon fishermen pop them off. Don't even bother pulling the fly out of their I, their mouth. I mean, it soon disintegrates, and let them go in a yeah. reasonable uh, shape. Whereas if if they're just sort of dead, and you've got to try and revive them, basically there's a pack of bull sharks waiting. At least in those royally Costa Rica rivers, uh, uh, they're they're waiting to devour them. Costa Rica was uh, a two sided. Uh, event. Uh, so over in the Pacific side, uh, there's a, uh, a lot of uh, sailfish, uh, amberjacks, uh, uh, there's even uh, a few tarpon and snook. They're, they're, they've snuck through the Suez Canal, not the Suez, the, Canama, the Panama Canal. There's a few tarpon showing up there in the Western Pacific. I wish they'd come over to our side. But, uh, yeah, I, I fished at a place there called Bahia Pesvela, and that was um, translated means the Bay of the Sailfish. And it was owned by a, a wonderful gentleman called Mark Tupper of Tupperware fame. And um, I went out uh, fishing with them. I had the, it was a, uh, Lefty had sort of put in a few good words for me. And also Jack Erskine. Jack Erskine had uh, arranged fishing for Mark when he was in Australia. And uh, uh, they'd put in a good word. And I got comped through the lodge there for a week. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I couldn't even afford to pay the tip. I mean, the, the tip is, a, is such a big thing with those high rollers. I mean, uh, and it can be up to... A, 33% of, of the basic charter. So I couldn't afford, even afford the tip and uh, gave them the shirts off my back. They were quite happy with the... I had some old 
policeman shirts with the insignia on them and uh, chevrons on the arm and and all that and uh, gave that gave them to these fellows I used to just cut the sleeves off as as I needed so uh, they, they 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 kind of enjoyed it but you know that was in lieu of a, of a tip anyway I went out fishing with them had a hell of a blood hell hell of a morning there's fish there to burn I I think I caught four sailfish this is on fly and these are serious sails too 100 pounders plus big I mean not 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 our little we don't seem to get them that size in Australia and uh, a couple of big uh, bull dolphins a uh, amberjack about would have been up to 40 pound I suppose but I, we didn't uh, uh, weigh him and, and also I, I got a rooster uh, it would have been in the 40 pound class too and cheated a little bit on the rooster it wouldn't transfer off the off the teaser I'd sort of you know cast and cast and then it'd, it'd go away and then as soon as we start up the motor again moving along it'd be back on the teaser and tried this three or four times and couldn't do it by the rules and uh, I thought I'll oh, stuff the rules anyway just threw the fly out and told the skipper to put it in a gear and bang got <laughs> it straight away uh, well, what about anyway, your um your trip uh, to Africa? You would have been targeting tiger fish and Nile perch and that sort of thing. How did that trip come about? Uh, well, an, an, initially uh, there was a, I knew I got to know from Bob Jones, a uh, game fishing mate, uh, a, a relative of his was <coughs> was a Qantas pilot, and Qantas uh, flew direct from um, Perth to Harare uh, in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. And there was a resort there where pilots used to lay over uh, before coming back. Uh, and that was on Lake Kariba, which is not far out of, not far from uh, the, May, the capital city of, I forget where it was, Harare, that's right. And that was a, a tiger fish um, uh, mother load, a lot of them there. But unfortunately, everyone didn't have much opportunity to use a fly. It was on a party boat, and everyone used live bait, a little herring-like fish that used to catch in a lampara net and uh, called yeah. it a capenta. So uh, caught tigers, but... On, on, on bait, and uh, it sort of, I, I never actually got to get one on fly. I know Pip Clement has, and a few other blokes that have been there, but uh, my experience was strictly uh, um, on, on bait. And uh, I rated them in about the, uh, like a salmon, uh, like Barramundi, Dorado from South America, Payara, Tigerfish. They're all sort of in that uh, group as far as, you know, uh, the spectacle and uh, the pull and, and so on uh, uh, and eat without any questions asked. And, uh, yeah, uh, it, it was sort of uh, uh, a lot of the, the Africans sort of seem to think that they, I know the Goliath tiger fish, which I have never encountered. That's in a couple of the Ongo, Ongo Bongo rivers and a, Bit dangerous 
there unless you've got some inside help. But uh, uh, it's vaunted as the, you know, the, the uh, uh, greatest freshwater fish in the world. But uh, those blokes haven't uh, been hand to hand with a black bass. I can guarantee you. So, yeah. But it 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 was good, and and uh, the Nile perch I uh, tangled with them up in uh, Lake uh, Lake Nasser in on the Nile uh, south of Cairo, and uh, I actually was at the at the time I was actually at the FTEX uh, short for European Fishing Tackle Exhibition, the same as what we have in Australia. That was conducted in Amsterdam. And uh, on the way home, uh, we called in uh, and had a fish at uh, at um, Lake Nasser in in Egypt. The uh, uh, pr- principal conducting the charter there had a brother in Australia, and uh, it was yeah, a little bit of networking here and there was uh, we're able to sort of track him down. But the Nile perch is, uh, you know, it's 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 a barramundi uh, on yeah. Mogadon. Yeah, barramundi on steroids. <laughs> uh, no, 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 <laughs> Mogadons, mate. Uh, and it grows bigger. And uh, but it was very interesting to to uh, observe what was going on. Yeah, you know, I mean, hot hot as the hubs of hell. I mean, I've shown sheep in, you know, in outback tin. Wall sheds where it must be 120 inside the shed, and uh, I, I thought that it was hotter over there, you know. And we're on a place there where they actually chisel the uh, stone for the pyramids and all that. And in that bare sun, I mean, it was it was pretty torrid, you know, 120 degree temperatures. <clears throat> but where they'd actually chiseled the rock, you can still see the the symmetrical. You know, uh, gaps uh, like gaps in a yeah. t- teeth sort of thing, uh, where they, these big blocks have been quarried. And if you look down, and uh, you could see the Nile perch parked in there, and the the, the bodies would be, were exposed to the sun, but they'd have their head parked almost like airliners <laughs> at a at a terminal parked into a yeah, little right. shade. And uh, I started just dangling a fly down uh, to them, tickling their backs with the fly and pissing them off and they'd grab it. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't really fishing, but it was just one of the, one of the locations where you, could, uh, yeah. where you could do that. But, you know, nevertheless, it was a mark on the uh, put, put another tick yeah. in a box sort of thing. Uh, one of the things I, I wanted to do was... Uh, uh, not so much fill up a CV of caught this, caught that. Uh, I, I I like the idea that if I couldn't be the best, yeah, I'd be the first. And then I've got no, I I am not competing with anyone. Only sort of, you know, getting there in in front of the uh, mob. Yeah, well, you can walk the walk and talk the talk because you've been there, you've done it. Oh well, <laughs> well yeah, maybe. <laughs> so. The 90s also saw um, Dean Butler started up Strudwick around then and you joined the pro staff there to help Dino out with Strudwick. That would have been a pretty exciting time. Yeah, I did. I actually left uh, Sage to do, to do that <coughs> and that, that uh, started off with so much uh, promise. Dean's uh, 
accountant, a bloke named Matt Thompson, had a grandfather from Scotland uh, and, uh, who was a well-to-do fly fisher over there, A.G. Strudwick. <clears throat> so him and Dean uh, hatched up this uh, uh, thing to, okay, let's sort of, uh, you know, uh, perpetuate his memory and, and do our own thing with fly, with fly rods. And uh, which they did, and, and Dean talked me into uh, uh, yeah. coming on board, which I did, and uh, that was going along swimmingly. Uh, Mick Winterton was another one there, uh, Leanne Payne, um, and there's a few others there I just can't, off the top of my head, Mark Williams, <coughs> all, a lot of Dean's mates. <coughs> anyway, um, that was going, <coughs> pardon me. Yeah, that was going fairly swimmingly, but uh, Matt, uh, you know, tragically, as a young man, had a heart attack and uh, gone. And uh, his business partner uh, had no background in fishing, and he just um, cheapened the product and drove it uh, down market. And of course, uh, it's all gone, all all over within a, within a few years. So, uh, part of the history now. That, so. that, yeah. But nevertheless, yep. it, it, Strudwick does have a place on the in the Fly Fisher uh, lexicon. Yep, and it was a brand that um, the shop I work at, Tackle World, here in Harvey Bay, when it used to be Fisherman's Corner on the Esplanade, they used to sell Strudwicks back then, and even Jason Edmonds used to sell them down at Fraser Coast Rod and Reel. Yeah. Um, that time as well would have been roughly like the bend back. You would have been popularising the bend back in Australia in the 90s. Very much so, yeah, and... Uh, <clears throat> half of the, half the uh, problem was uh, I wasn't a good enough tire to be, uh, you know, much I got to the head of the fly, I'm running out of room, I got bloody like a punk rock hairdo coming out of the bindings around the eye. And, and my idea th then was I started to coat, coat it with uh, nail polish, which I found easier to work with, than fly tying cement, which you couldn't get, but coat that part with uh, uh, lacquer, let it dry, yeah. and then trim it off with a razor blade, and then tie a nice slopey head rather than try and squeeze everything in. That was just yeah. an, another approach. But anyway, I, I, I found weed guards uh, were also fish proof. And, and went through all that. And, and the bend back seem a, such a simple way to do things. Would... And I guess riding hook point up, you can drag them through the salad, the lily pads, all that sort of thing, so you can get it to where the fly <coughs> needs to be without fouling up. And Exactly. And if you exaggerate the upper dressings, uh, they act as a, a weed guard uh, while doing a dual, dual function of... Uh, attracting fish so you underdress the bottom side of the fly overdress the top but not too pronounced and that top dressing uh going from the shank up to the gape uh acts as a weed guard anyway so you have a, an yep. all-terrain fly and yeah uh, i think you even you even did an article in fly life about i think it was the comeback of the bend back and went into detail a bit about it so. i did yeah yeah well i i i i thought it was being overlooked uh, you know, everyone was sort of a pink thing and, and uh, uh, 
whatever else, but mainly pink things. And and when Klaus's came along, and uh, uh, I I was having a good uh, good run uh, guiding up in a longer on on the pink thing, uh, not the pink things, but the uh, bend back. And yeah. uh, when Bob Popovich decided to tie it, and this was up. Uh, after I'd done the thing in uh, Fly Life, uh, he decided to do an all bucktail version, so bucktail in lieu of feathers, and that made yeah. a good uh, a good fly better. Uh, the simple fact is that uh, uh, feathers, uh, good as they are, and certainly synthetics uh, for sure need. Uh, they they provide shape and silhouette and a few other virtues, but basically need movement through the water to uh, come alive. Whereas the very finely tips uh, tapered uh, tips of bucktail, uh, they don't need motion in the water. They they do their thing uh, at rest. It's it's very it sort of breathes in the water. Yeah, it's very minute and. Uh, the thing that sort of struck me after after uh, catching a few barrel on fly and if Murray Cod too is you, a good fly. You can never retrieve it too slow. Yep. So I started to emphasise a, a hover, build a hover into the fly, and fish them also on a floating line uh, because a sinking line continues to drag the fly down. A fish will rise to a fly, but rarely go down for it. So I'd rather yeah. lengthen the leader. But I'm only talking water a maximum of 10 foot deep, so I'd probably at times use up to a 10 foot uh, leader and and uh, let it go down to the fish and then expect the fish to come up. And that can gives you a, a potential to hover it at a certain depth. And while it's on the hover, of course, it's, sparkling away and uh, that's when I started to put eyes on flies I, I sort of uh, uh, I'm not convinced of the value of eyes you know I always take the view that my flies know where they're going anyway so I'd, they don't need eyes to see see the way <laughs> uh, that's probably being a bit sort of uh, obtuse but uh, nevertheless that's uh, uh, fish aren't interested in eyes. Popovic doesn't use eyes, and there are lots of uh, uh, people that will say, "Well, it's eye, you know, beauty's in the eye, eye of the beholder." And uh, a lot of tires feel incomplete without an eye on the fly. Well, that's fair enough. I'm not, I'm not going to argue uh, with that, but I would question whether or not it's uh, essential when it comes down to the nitty gritty whether that fish is going to eat or not. And anyway, uh, look at the uh, bead chain. I mean, uh, Blanton used uh, bead chain uh, as a alternative to to eyes for years. But uh, anyway, the, the hover is the main thing. That big eye, looking, staring, you know, unblinking uh, eye contact is one of the major things in the animal world. You you eyeball a, a savage dog, it's going to grab you by the nuts or, you know, something like that. Whereas if you, if you avoid eye contact and, and be a bit submissive with your behaviour 
and all that, you can sort of get yourself out of a, a situation. Uh, that, that eye contact is, is uh, very important uh, in the animal world. So in a hover situation, uh, a, a fly perhaps has some virtue there, uh, like a, a retrieve cadence, a couple of a strip strip, pause, and sometimes that, that pause can be, it's indeterminate. I, I've paused it for a minute and all of a sudden the line tightens. You know, so why is that? Um, and, and lure fishers are just discovering that. They're using neutral density, uh, bo neutral buoyancy. Suspending hard yeah. bodies. Yeah, yeah. okay. And the, and the, the same uh, thing, uh, uh, particularly predatory implosion feeders, Murray Cod and, and Barramundi, uh, they're, they're two. Uh, you know, um, that go hand in hand. The only difference with them is that with Murray Cod, uh, once uh, hooked, you don't need a lot of uh, skill in the way of rod work to land one. You've got to do something really wrong to stuff it up. Whereas uh, Barra, uh, probably the best escape artist of a fish swimming, you haven't got it till you're hands on. And, and you yeah. know, well, they can jump and throw the fly, they can be dirty and try and bury oh, in the timber uh, or the and, weeds. And, and, so. Absolutely, yet they take the same fly and the same technique. Yep, yep. And so, the mid 2000s, when you were guiding at Lawonga, at Lawonga Dam, there you were that's when you roughly joined the TFO team, so Temple Fork Outfitters. How did that come about? Oh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a long story. And uh, once uh, Sage became corporatized uh, uh, the culture changed a little bit and a lot of the people on the from lefty uh, through uh, uh, moved on uh, and uh, Rick Pope who the, who's the founder of uh, Temple Fork he was actually uh, taking lefty to an airport they just sort of it was a, a, a convenient thing more than anything after those shows, finish, everyone departs for various destinations and uh, they struck up a conversation and uh, uh, Lefty, uh, Rick uh, offered him a job and Lefty says, yeah, but that, that's just part of the thing. Rick uh, tells me, he was, he's a very dear friend, uh, that uh, throughout the matter of money was not mentioned once. You know, and, and Lefty Cray was one of a, a someone who could name his own price, uh, and, and of course uh, he, he 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 was had a financial connection, but it would no, none of it was at, at his behest. There's nothing mercenary about it. Yeah, but uh, Rick uh, related that story to me. The money, the matter of money, was not mentioned a single time. So you know that says. Volumes for the man. And, and of course, Lefty's network followed him, uh, Flip Pallet, uh, Plouser. Bob Clouser, Bob, yeah. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and yours truly. Mind you, look, I'm out of a depth amongst those blokes, but uh, nevertheless, it was a, a sense of quiet satisfaction and a sense of pride not to sort of uh, put my hand up and say, hey, me, me, me. Nothing like that. I was invited. So, uh, and even some of the guys now, like um, Blaine Chocolate, like you were there for the the birth of the <laughs> I, um, the game changer, I, I, as we know I, I, it. I was, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was in Dallas, 
and uh, Blaine pulled this fly out and said, what do you think of this? Uh, this was at the uh, where we were staying at the at a motel complex and given a chuck of the swimming pool. And I thought, my God, yeah, actual, the ultimate uh, swimming fly. And uh, look at the uh, interest and, uh, you know, uh, the well, just the, the outright interest. There's been no fly in salt water given the, the uptake and the amount of people that, that are into the uh, craft these days or whatever, you know, what, what, uh, no fly that I can remember ever, ever having such a, uh, a level of interest. No individual fly. There are sites on Facebook now, the, the uh, game changer, blah, 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 you know, everyone. Yeah, dedicated to the to the game changer. Maybe it's a degree of difficulty. I, I wouldn't even contemplate trying them. <laughs> yeah, they're quite a labour-intensive oh, lot of time. Yeah, and... yeah very, very, but it is captivated. And, and it's, it's a bit like uh, um, plastics, mate. Plastics blurred the distinction between hard-bodied lures and bait. They definitely breached yep. that uh, gap there. The gap. Uh, and yep. uh, game, the game changer is uh, blurring that distinction between a, a, a swimming lure and, and a fly that does the same thing. The only difference is you can cast it on a fly rod, so therefore it is fly fishing. The semantic uh, people might object or jump up and down, but that's the simple fact. If you can use it on a fly rod in the normal manner, it is a fly. End of story. Yep, yep. And there's, um, I think there's always people trying to come up with different patterns and trying to innovate and, it, it is one of those ones, like even in Australia, we've had, um, we've got some great ties here that tie the, the game changer and even a few, like there's a new one, the slow water game changer that Chris Adams came up with. So hats off to him. It's an incredible fly for that using foam tabs inside it. Um, I think it's definitely something that we'll see more development with it over the years to come. Yeah, definitely. Oh, there, there's some very, very creative people, uh, you know, uh, at Flies Now. My only vice is very basic, you know. I can tie a clouser and uh, a, a bendback uh, bucktail deceiver, but uh, beyond that, I'm um, I'm out of it. Yeah, well, realistically, you open a fly box, and there's probably a handful of flies that you use regularly. So, <laughs> as long as you can, as long as you can cover those ones, you, you're pretty well set. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of the things about flies, mate, is that you've got to build a a fishability into it. Now, the first thing you, you look at is uh, the hook size. Can I cast the damn thing? You know, when you're uh, working out what uh, weight rod you, you need, a bit like a golfer, uh, depending on how far from the hole he is as to what iron he's going to play. And, and fly rods are basically the same. The size and physical mass weight of a fly etc should determine what size rod you're going to use not the firepower in the blank yeah. uh, because you can overload the leader point the rod at the fish and uh, basically you've got a hand line that's how you used to fish yeah. the, the, the black bass there was no way in the world it could bring the, the weight of the rod to bear in any real meaningful uh, form so uh, you know uh, you you can't you can't say 
once you get below above say a two o uh, size fly on most anything, uh, an eight weight's starting to run out of bloody puff. Yeah, you go, yeah. go to a, a six o and and you're battling to do it on a ten weight. You know the, yeah. the, that sort yeah. of it's all relevant. Very much so. So the 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 criteria is the size of the fly that you're going to cast determines uh, what uh, what rods that you're going to use. I I, I, I yeah. don't see any need to go above a, a four o. Maybe for billfish, go to an eight or twelve o over there. But that that's an entirely different uh, uh, game. But for general fishing, there's no point going above a four o. And indeed, like tarpon fishing, they're down two o's. Yeah, and, and yeah. yeah, especially some of those little worm flies they're throwing over there now. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And, and they uh, uh, they're looking for penetration rather than holding power. You know, the uh, one of the things that seems to go astray is the fact that a fine gauge hook fully penetrating. Uh, only only going to look at those little fiddly um, like um, assist hooks or, or, or a Christmas yeah. tree if you. Not a Christmas tree, the bait rigs, and that if you're jiggling for for yellowtail or something like that, and uh, you know I've seen bloody you know, respectable uh, snapper caught on them. They've come up, and, you know. So. Yeah, well, one of one of the boys at work, he caught a nine kilo goldie on a bait jig one day chasing pike before he went trout fishing. So yeah, it it, it <laughs> says um says things about the little hooks that they use. That, that's so. right. Yeah, yeah. So that's had to. We've had to do a rethink on uh, holding power, and it's not necessarily the gauge of hook. So penetration yeah. is, is, is the other thing. You know, the the uh, size and weight of the hook, the the type of the type of hook. You know, there, there's uh, calls for different tie styles of hook for different uh, flies, and and then the the dressing. Most flies are over overdressed. You 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 know the you pack the um, dressings on and sure you've got a bit of shape there but but you don't have uh, life the the, the fibres have got to have a bit of freedom of movement so you have the impression I, of bulk there but without the mass so you're building and I guess that's things like a um like a good clouser is usually a sparse clouser and and even Bob Popovic's style of tying with bucktail it's the illusion <laughs> illusion of mass. Um, exactly. You don't really have the bulk there, so it's easy to cast, but you get the movement as well. Exactly, and and you have the impression of bulk, but uh, yeah, it's it's all sort of uh, yeah, uh, shank and ribs sort of thing, you know, yeah. almost like that Daiwa uh, logo, that type of thing. There's no, the impression is there, and that lets the fibers uh, gives them a freedom of movement. Yeah. And a lot of these topics, like you've um, profiled a lot of these tyres in like fly life and that sort of thing, you've had quite a, um, a successful riding career um, like over the years, like you've written for um, Fishing World, Modern Fishing, Fly Life, and you've also published a few books as well. Let's, let's talk about those books. <coughs> well, that was a natural progression uh, from, uh, you know, writing magazines and, and, and that and um, Plus, and I needed the money, and you know that, that was the one one of the things why I first got into riding was, uh, you know, the the piss poor pay as a policeman and uh, a habit to support 
and how am I going to do it? And writing seemed to be the, the natural progression. And at some stage or other, you've got to make, you've got to write a book. I, I, I guess most um, writers gravitate to to that at some stage of, of life. Um, <clears throat> I uh, had a bit of time on my hands when I was guiding at uh, a Wonga. I was on the water for yeah, you know, some like two hundred days, some years. It really was. And if uh, if I didn't have a charter, I'd be out there sort of doing a bit of homework, finding out, experimenting, what worked, how how fish related to this and that, and because the behaviour pattern changes um, uh, with, with the environment. I mean, tidal fish are, are an open book. Uh, they react to certain tide stage, stages, you know, and you're pretty much predictable. <clears throat> a different set of um, factors applies to lake fish. You know, people do take the tidal mentality there and get out on the full moon and that, but uh, the factors that influence um, barrow behaviour in still waters aren't, aren't celestial, but uh, yeah, climatic, the local weather conditions, water temps and that, they're the key. <clears throat> so anyway, um, barrow was my first uh, attempt to uh, at a book, uh, and uh, I uh, got hold of my friend uh, Malcolm Douglas, who I've known for years, great admirer of him, uh, to do a foreword. Apropos of all that, you know, Malcolm was uh, in a fatal accident, that, uh, and the whole nation mourned um, at, at his uh, passing. Uh, but anyway, um, we had a plan to go to New Guinea. He'd, he'd done an epic uh, journey there years ago up in the Fly River and uh, Lefty expressed a bit of interest uh, in that and we were going to go go up there and, and uh, do Fly River Mark II, catch some uh, black bass and, and that sort of stuff. But in the meantime, it was very, very difficult to line up our um, schedules, uh, especially Lefty and then Malcolm's tragic accident uh, occurred and... Uh, uh, that put paid to that. But anyway, Malcolm Malcolm wrote the foreword to that uh, book. And, uh, yeah, it, it's... Uh, it was, it, I, I think it was... It, I was pretty happy with it, although if I was applying it to, to today, I'd probably change a, a few little things, but not the basic essence. And the last book I wrote was uh, a thing on uh, lines and braids and that, and Lefty did the foreword to that, and that uh, uh, that sold better in America than Australia. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I guess when, when Braids first came out and that sort of thing, there wasn't much known about it. So to be able to get that information for a lot of people, how to join the, the Braids leader and that sort of thing, and, and especially too with your knowledge being the man behind Bionic Braid, um, probably the perfect person to write the book on that. <coughs> well, there's so much uh, misconception floating around uh, about braids, you know, and a lot of it was was quite unnecessary. I mean, you could tie a, a hook on with a granny knot or a series of granny knots, and you still got a you you've got what the uh, branding on the label uh, says. Like any knot, doesn't matter how good it is uh, in braids, gives you uh, fifty to seventy percent of the uh, tensile strength of the unknotted line. It's a fishing fact of life. You can't get around that. And uh, to get it to to 
cover their asses. So I, I guess the manufacturers double the uh, breaking unknotted breaking strain on their labelling, so that when anyone tie, ties a, bo a bodgy knot, they're still within parameters. Uh, so uh, it was a lot of ado about nothing, really. But uh, I, I did that book to create an understanding of how braids actually work. The fibres are self-lubricating, and, and this puts an inexorable and, and uh, infinite creep. Give it enough pressure and it'll creep, 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 whereas mono has to lock up the bulk of the uh, monofilament jamming against other layers and that. The knot is not going to move. It gets a, you, you come to a, or to a halt point. Uh, whereas braids, uh, the creep is ongoing and anywhere there, where there's a pressure point, uh, be it a knot or, or uh, uh, the bollard on a line testing machine or whatever, any any pressure point uh, develops into a hot spot and an elongation microscopic, uh, of course, does occur and the break is inevitably there. So you can tie a ball tear of the bimini twist and the break will always be at the top of the rollover. So, uh, you know, uh, that needed to be explained, but uh, not so uh, the most subjective subject in the entire, in fishing. And there are so many opinions on that. And uh, at the end, I, I probably couldn't, wouldn't have bothered writing that book unless, uh, you know, uh, it was going to sort of help clarify. But uh, unfortunately, it got lost in the, in the weight of opinions and, oh, and again, all of it's subjective. And uh, it's sold better in the, in the States, perhaps through lefties, forward than uh, what it did in, in Australia. Yeah. And you're working on a, another book now, A Million <laughs> Casts. Did you want to talk a little bit about I, that? I, yeah, I, I, I am. Uh, I am. It, I, it's been a work in progress for, for a lot of years and uh, it's morphed into uh, what they call a, a legacy, I suppose. You know, uh, I've got to face the fact that, you know, um, uh, I'm staring 80 in the face, and uh, they haven't gaffed me yet, but I, I'm not going to be around forever. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's a legacy there, and uh, I have a story to tell. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, particularly the, the historical uh, uh, st stages uh, uh, that we've already discussed, you know, fishing has gone through... Uh, never to be repeated times they are exciting times but uh and i think they need there needs to be a record uh made of it you know i'm being a, a bit of a senior citizen i guess i'm the, i'm the, i'm the one uh it falls to me i mean uh like vic mccrystal was um, the doyen of writers during his time uh he just quietly went into retirement uh, he still had uh, work to do, but he just decided he, he said it all and went into quiet retirement. And um, I've I've been urged by people, uh, Paul Dolan especially, is on my case every time I talk to him. Uh, when are you going to get that book out? And 
I think it's important for us to know the people that came before us. And there's a lot of people that think that they're doing something new, but they don't realize that it's already been done before. Like there's been people like yourself and Barry Cross and people that were there at the start. Um, it's sort of yeah, been there, done that. So it's good for people to know that it that it is something that has been done and to preserve the history because a sad thing is once um, once the pioneers are gone, it's, um, unless that's chronicled, you, you lose that information. Yes, uh, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, there, there are no fishing uh, backwaters and by, byways that haven't been explored. There's nothing really new in fishing. It, it's uh, the same train, new drivers, a new slant, uh, no reinventing uh, the wheel, uh, but certainly uh, re- greasing it to make it spin faster. But uh, that, that's about it, you know. And, and that was the same in my day. You know, I, I had mentors, mentors, and uh, but there was also uh, new things that weren't were being, uh, you know, tried for the first time. Un- unknown areas, you know, and, and they're not around anymore. And, and I think that needs to be uh, chronicled, you know, and uh, I've sort of made it a, uh, you know, it, it's become a, I suppose, a legacy almost anyway to, to document it, chronicle it, put it down, this is what happened, when and who and, and, and what and, and where. And, and uh, it's been a, trip down memory lane I'm sort of you know and I've tried not to embellish it too much I mean these bios uh, <laughs> you perceive yourself a bit differently to what others uh, think but I, I, I fortunately I fish with enough blokes now that will keep me honest and you know I don't have to say too much I, uh, and this is something that the, today's generation need to sort of work out it's not what they say. They can crow all they like. It's third-person credibility. It's what others say. And that's uh, that's a point that yep. they they miss. Yeah. And when, when can we expect this book to come out? Yeah, later in the yeah. Year, or? I, mate, mate, I'm, not, I'm not rushing it to meet any deadline. Uh, writer's block is, is uh, not an endangered species, not with me anyway. I've got to be in the right mood. And I'm trying very hard to improve my writing. I mean, it was, when I started, uh, you know, I left school at 14. I had no uh, English skills whatsoever. So I tried to work on it. And uh, Steve Cooper, who are a, a very dear friend, I forgot to mention him too. Cooper uh, is another one of these blokes who just picked up a fly rod and uh, made it work. Uh, his background was initially uh, land-based f- game. He's caught 50-pound kingies off the rocks. Uh, uh, it was a regular at Green Cape and so on, New Zealand and so on. But he also is a very handy uh, bloke with a fly rod, another one that picked it up and made it work. Scoop, I took him up to Harvey Bay there at one stage. Him and his uh, mate, uh, Chris Palisides, they both caught uh, goldens on fly, long tails, and and uh, matter of fact, boom, make a cast. There it is. Uh, Cooper has won in, in mainstream uh, journalism two Walkley Awards. That's the highest accolade. Uh, he's won two of those, and he helped me a lot with my writing. Uh, his advice was to uh, use short declarative sentences 
quoted Winston Churchill, 11 word average, but also how to make a sentence long. And if you can marry those two, uh, you know, you, you're sort of getting up in the Hemingway League. Scoop also, that's his nickname, S. Cooper, but his, his pen name was Scoop uh, when he was uh, a mainstream journalist, was also the first Australian to catch a mako shark on fly. So he, he, he's up there too. But uh, as a writer and, and someone to help me uh, with my uh, wordsmithing, uh, uh, I wouldn't have got this far without him. Yeah, and I think we're pretty lucky in Australia that we we still have some great um, writers like Steve Starling and Greg French, yourself, um, a lot of inspirational people, and like you just get captivated by um, by the words. So we're we're pretty lucky that we do have these people, and like you had Vic McChrystal back in the day, and um, some, yeah. some great work. But what would you what would you say for the younger generation, like looking at delving into writing and how to improve their writing? Well, uh, that's probably going to what what I'd say would be going against the trend. Uh, uh, the uh, criteria in in uh, getting published these days is shit hot pics, and as uh, digital yep. photography is allowed uh, that uh, art form to to proliferate and excel, uh, the writing standard has actually gone down downhill. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of it's uh, the standard of a sixth-grade uh, composition, uh, you know, and uh, too many first-person pronouns. Uh, the sun was shining, I made a cast, the fish uh, took the lure, I played it, I looked at it, I photographed it, oh, God, I look good. Uh, you know, uh, just a barrage of first-person me, myself, and I pronouns, which is sort of a, that's a thing that you need to avoid. Uh, and, yeah. you know, uh, develop a style which you can call your own. Uh, avoid cliches, uh, ban adverbs, um, and uh, short declarative sentences, and also interspace them with ways to lengthen a sentence and and come in with the final few words at the end of the paragraph or end of the story, just a little knockout, boom, there it is, a few words and encapsulate the whole shebang. Yeah, oh. yeah. I think um, there's some definitely some good points there for, for striving artists and that sort of thing and, and it would be a shame for... Um, for yeah, the writing skills to go on a downward spiral, especially with the people that we've had before us. So um, yeah, I think on 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 that note, we might um might wrap things up. We've gone just around two hours. Have we at the really? Moment, but I want to thank. Oh, yeah, it's, it's flown by. I know my um. I've finished my whiskey now, so I'm ready for yeah, a top yeah, up. Well, but I want to thank you again for for coming on and for your contributions to the sport. Like, there's so many people that owe. A lot to yourself and people like yourself for um, for the passing on your knowledge and that sort of thing. Without these teachers, we wouldn't know what we know now. So thanks again for for coming on and thanks for what you've done for the well, sport. Well, it's a pleasure, mate, and it's really uh, uplifting to, to know that you know. Okay, there's uh, 
uh, the, the record is being uh, kept. You know, that, that's the one of the things about fly fishing. It's very big on traditions. You only got to look at the way old fly fishing books uh, sell. You know, the 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 the, the heritage is is in good hands. It's being maintained, and and uh, you know, I, I'm. Uh, there's a quiet satisfaction my end to be able to make uh, some uh, contribu- contribution, even though it's uh, a bit on the personalised side. But, you know, fly fishing has been good to me and I'm happy to put a bit back. And I look forward to seeing your book and having you up here. We'll organise a, sh- uh, a book signing in the shop and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people happy to say good day, shake your hand and hear a few stories. Well, I'd look forward to that, mate. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks again, Rod, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Um, I'll let you know when this one's up, and, yeah, all the best. Yeah, good on you, mate, and, uh, yeah, uh, good fishing, everyone. It happens to uh, tune into this. Righto. Thanks, Rod. How, mate? Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with what Harrow is doing, you can jump on Facebook and like his page, Harrow at Large. You'll also find the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast on Facebook, and if you jump onto Instagram and type at Australian Fly Fishing Podcast, you'll find us there. Thanks again, and I look forward to bringing another episode to you very soon.